0: you're listening to the Transforming Society podcast, I'm Richard Kemp and today I'm speaking with Candida Purnell, Associate Professor of International Relations at Richmond, the American International University in London, and Lucy Easthope, Professor in Practice of Risk and Hazard at the University of Durham, and Fellow in Mass Fatalities and Pandemics at the Centre for Death and Society, University of Bath. Along with Amy Courtrient and Jenny Edkins, Candida and Lucy are editors of When This Is Over, Reflections on an Unequal Pandemic, published by Policy Press. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a profound, many times tragic effect on us all. The social inequalities that this pandemic revealed were staggering. For this editor collection, Amy, Lucy, Jenny and Candida selected works from authors, activists and artists that show how people came together in unexpected ways while their leaders and institutions often failed them. The authors explore what lessons we should learn from this experience and whether things will improve and for whom, when this is over. Candida and Lucy, welcome to the Transforming Society podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm excited to chat about your book. I absolutely love reading it. So I'm really excited to dig in with you. For this book, you selected academic essays, journalism, memoir, writing, essays from an emergency planner and a mortuary professional poetry a play script a photo essay by led by donkeys even a twitter thread there's more i could go on what what was the what was the reason for gathering so many perspectives and also so many different formats for this book
1: I know isn't it isn't it wonderful and actually I, I have to thank Candida for that because she just had this wonderful way of she she sees everything as possible so when she saw <laughs> these things she was like shall we put them in and I was like oh crikey we're putting in and it's perfect and one of the things I'm really really pleased about actually is the Twitter thread um, mm. by by Mark Brown and um, all four of us were at, were on Twitter and me and Candida probably a bit more so than 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 the others. And and we were just it was I, I know Candida feels the same. It was an archive, it was a place of pain. And we spotted that thread and almost immediately Candida had sort of gone to Mark for permission to use it. And that's just an mm-hmm. example of of the the magpie horde that we were able <laughs> to create here, I'm just so so pleased with that and I knew you see with Jenny's work long before this Jenny is a capturer of stories that are so fragile they mm. could be lost, and so I just sort of feel that that it it was absolutely right that this was multiple sources and actually it's often the poetry and the art that just screams the pain of what we've been through I don't know that right. just writing would have captured that so we've ended up with exactly as I described myself in the end this quilt of of mm-hmm. things that are just perfect um, and I hope that appeals to listeners and readers. Yes
2: and to answer to that I, I kind of see it as a scrapbook it just text was not going to be enough and um, mm-hmm. it had to be about what had to somehow capture the other things that people were were making visible um so the art the images and photographs and to bring everything mm. together so that later if you hadn't managed to see it all in real time it's a place where it's collected up and you can kind of go back into that time it's um yeah it's that's what it is for me and yeah we we would see things and we would just go for it we would ask please can we put this in please can we put this in and we and the responses we had were amazing. People wanted to share and be a part of this and wanted um, their feelings and their thoughts and their paintings to be part of this record Mm. of that time. So we can come back later and digest.
0: Uh, You say early on in the book that the COVID death toll is profoundly classed and raced. Reading about the circumstances for asylum seekers and refugees was particularly shocking. In one chapter, I saw that between 1905 and 1998, the UK government introduced 70 new immigration offences. That that actually seemed when I first read that, I thought, "Oh, that's high." And, and then, but then between just 1999 and 2016, the number of new offences added was 89. How have these additions to the law affected asylum seekers and refugees, especially through the peak COVID years?
2: So yeah, thank you for this question. And for this one, obviously, there's four co- there's four co-editors and uh, Lucy and I are here today. Amy and Jenny can't be here. And this question really is relating to Amy's chapter. Amy Courtfiend is a criminologist, and so we've gone to Amy to, to fill this in. And um, for you, and that's I think one thing about the book that again we should emphasise.
0: Mm. Um,
2: without we've got Jenny Akin's political theorist, Lucy practitioner, disaster planner, uh, professor of emergency and planning. Um, I'm in international relations, uh, international political theory, and Amy's our criminologist. So the book. Mm it's it's got that i mean there's parts of the book that we the expertise is so broad due to the four of us so basically this is amy's mm, chapter yeah. and the responses comes from amy literally but these um yes it is it's shocking the amount of new offenses the the um criminalization around asylum seekers and the refugees mm. but amy wanted to um when we come In this response, she wanted to focus our response on asylum seekers because refugees have a right to remain and different rights. So in the case of those seeking asylum in the UK, it's actually Blair's new labour that were incredibly punitive in the era of immigration, which Mm -hmm. is the area of law at the intersection of criminal and immigration law. So in border criminology, Amy's specialist area, researchers and practitioners are very critical of a string of home secretaries, actually, particularly since Theresa May, but all the way back to New Labour's legislation, which paved the way for much of these recent Im- Im- innovations we're seeing, including now the beginning of off- the offshoring of the asylum, which is very mm. concerning. Um, so, there's this wave of New Labour immigration legislation came at a time where media, um, the media, was prolifically publishing images of migrants arriving in lorries under- underneath Eurostar trains. So the relationship between the media, the public, and politics was much as we see uh, today, and 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 it becoming about politicians wanting to be seen to do something about the problem of immigration. So it's mm. all it was driven by uh, media discourse, and then something that politicians wanted to be seen acting on. But the main piece of legislation relevant to Amy's chapter, um, she says, is the Immigration and Asylum Act of 1999, which created carrier sanctions for lorry drivers as it's criminalizing those, implementing dispersal, which removed asylum seekers' ability to choose accommodation, restrictions Mm -hmm. on dispersal impacted on asylum seekers during the pandemic as they allowed um, people seeking safety to be moved between asylum accommodations. So during um, uh, COVID, they were um, already highly criminalized, but in Amy's chapter, she explains how those living in glasgow were moved from covid safe container accommodations to hotels and um we saw them um used in being put in disused army barracks in inappropriate and unsafe and on, often unsanitary accommodation mm. and, and this led to a number of outbreaks of covid and other issues so due to their criminalization um their conditions during covid were were unsafe and um you could say there's a kind of criminalization and alongside a, a a dehumanizing discourse that we've seen in the press uh, just, to,
1: just yeah just to come in there as a as a planner you're heading into the pandemic knowing that this will be a huge factor and we'd seen some it was something I was I was very very concerned about so I'm an I'm an emergency planner and we worry about mm-hmm. the risk itself and the pandemic was a very high risk um uh, consideration in the uk but you worry as well about about the um the people it will hit hardest and this was a group that really all of the disaster literature was already was already telling us would be um would be incredibly uh, punished by a pandemic and that's exactly what what happened and also i think i think as we as we edged towards 2019 um for all the reasons amy says there there wasn't the appetite to prioritize these people so yeah. these people were going to be harmed by the virus and its effects and then as we are seeing now be harmed by the aftermath And then the other thing, you know, Candida made a brilliant point before about we're not really at when this is over. This book is to be reached out for in the future. Right. The other thing that follows pandemics is the hatred, is the pogroms, is the riots. So, um, you know, the book is also a set. There's a sense of kind of a portent of building up. Um, where, you know, I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal, isn't it? To think that there was, there's, um, further 80, 89 offenses added in just over a decade. How many mm. more will we see pushed through and welcomed in the next three or four years? Right, right. So, I mean, all the way through the book, we've also tried to suggest glimmers of hope. And I think there's a growing recognition in the disaster research community of how vulnerable asylum seekers are in disaster planning. So, um, I think that the segue between their their needs and the crimigration and then and then what happens next, is really important.
0: Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Candida. The um, yeah, the thanks
1: so Amy. Good. Thanks Amy.
0: For oh yeah, true. That. Yeah, good point. Thanks. Thank you, Amy, for um, coming in by satellite there. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah, the offshoring of offshoring of immigration. That's such a that's a terrible term, isn't it? It just so kind of gives me the shivers. Um, but just like it, just like um, kind of turns it into like a, I don't know, just like a a process it, that would happen in an office, I guess. Just you know, like going to the stationary cupboard, and then I'm going to go complete some offshoring of immigration. It just seems to normalise, I suppose.
2: Yeah, the language of mm. like outsourcing
1: or something, and that is yeah. what we
0: literally
1: yeah, what mm. Seen. Mm. but and I think the government have ushered in, in terms terms to uh, you know to act as euphemisms very effectively Mm. through this you know lockdown is a euphemism there's no such thing as a lockdown it's just a a very unequal disparate process that means that that people with extreme needs are neglected you know we Mm. we use you know there's a there's a, a constant reissuing of lexicon of appropriate language to use um and um yeah i think that i think this is this you know we must we must challenge the the language of some of this and one of the things that I love about the anthology is our ability to question ourselves question each other hold multiple truths in in our hands um I mean I actually felt we were very ideologically aligned as a four but also we were able to critically reflect in a way that had become less popular I think even in academia Mm -hmm. so you can have absolutely two truths sitting next to each other as Sue Black says in her wonderful opening and I I mean that very much I think reflected my relationship with Jenny because Jenny had written about some of the cruelties of processes in 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 uh, UK disaster planning and she just she when I first met her I think I made her miss three trains because we were just drinking (laughs) coffee for so long and when I first met her she was it was almost it was so needed for me it was 2007 she challenged everything that i thought mm. about after disaster and she's done it again and that i think that's <laughs> the that's the power of of all of this and you yeah. you don't you don't it's not a pan, it's not an anthology about the pandemic it's a pan, mm-hmm. it's an anthology about everything
0: <laughs> it's like, <you> know, <laughs> yes. it's
1: like every, every, from now on you're guided by when this is over
0: yeah yeah i love that when faced with the prospect of a second lockdown The Daily Mail reported then Prime Minister Boris Johnson as saying to let the bodies pile high. Millennials and Gen Zers joked online about COVID-19 being a boomer remover. Meanwhile, shop workers and taxi drivers got reclassified as key workers so they would keep going at their own risk while others were either working from home or put on furlough. Why was there so much animosity and devaluation of life during this period?
2: Yes, what a question, Rich. Yes, so I'm going to, um, in my chapter, I do talk about that um, that phrase that that Johnson used, letting the bodies pile high, and I describe it as horrifying, but of course it wasn't alone in the kind of comments that motivated me. I used to write about war, I used to write about war, and I don't do that anymore, because I don't need to. So I now switch to, um, about the minute, still trying to understand the body politics of the um the pandemic which Mm. is just the body politics of our society more generally Mm. and like this book is about the pandemic but it's not really the pandemic's a way for us to understand our society better because it brings certain things to light um and it and yeah the dehumanizing discourse was something that switched my attention from what i was doing which was studying war to studying the pandemic let the bodies pile high um, take, we're going to take it on the chin. Apparently, that was the first one mm. that really got, uh, horrified me. Who's going to take it on the chin? Which ones of us? Um, right. You, Boris Johnson? No, not you. You've got a bed reserved for you in St Thomas's Hospital before you even arrive. But some of us will be dead before the ambulance arrives. So the um, something, yeah, this was this was horrifying for me. And then later, yeah. then another comment uh, that I talk about in my chapter is Dominic Cummings when he scribbled on that whiteboard about who shall we not save so some there's calculation going on about life which lives are valued which lives are um which lives are required and Mm -hmm. made key as you say key workers uh key for some things some things but also um maybe not valuable in other ways left left extremely vulnerable through um um uh, PPE stockpiles being sold off, et cetera, and mm. being very unsafe in the workplace. Um so in, in a way key, but as individuals not there's less value attached there even I though see. there's there's this is what I work on, um, the value of lives, the value of bodies, who decides and who gets made more vulnerable But anyway, mm. and then we see that reflected in society as um basically uh, for me, inequality is at the centre of all of this. And it with regard to the animosity in particular and that's our inequality of experience during the pandemic was so it was it was so unequal the way the pandemic was experienced within particular um social groups within particular areas between mm-hmm. in particular communities, we in some um segments of society um people people at home having a Party on Zoom, getting bored, taking up a new hobby due to being a fellow not really knowing what to do. And mm. um, They didn't get COVID till a lot later. And I'm talking about my own um, demographic here. Suddenly everyone gets COVID in like the Omicron wave, but that's about a year and a half after um, people have, you know, on the front line are dying due to COVID in the first and second wave. Mm. So they're not mm. able to lock up at home for years on end and get multiple jabs. So right. a lack of understanding between people and different concerns, of course, it all exacerbated by the conditions of a lockdown times and laws, for example, um, you know, there weren't any funerals, there, all of the rituals of mourning were, that was all done behind closed doors, if you will, and locked into particular communities. We weren't sharing the experience, we were locked away from one another literally in a new way, which is mm. gonna have profound social effects. And I think has worked in my chapter, where I talk about how all of this has contained grief at first in particular communities, and it's heightened what I've called atmospheric walls within society. All those those have heightened throughout the pandemic. So now we've come out even more um, disparate from one another emotionally, not able to relate and mm-hmm. yes, and so those dehumanized in the eyes of others—that's just been, thats con- continued and been exacerbated through this time. So it's all—it it's, comes down to the inequalities in society originally that lead to us being so um, socioeconomically divided, and then the that the those led to such a different experience of the pandemic. We can't even speak of the pandemic. There are so many. Di- there are so many different pandemics for, for the different segments within society. So right. it's just it's just further apart. That's really down. My chapter, I guess, is quite. It's quite a down. Maybe not one of the most
1: hopeful chapters.
0: <laughs> necessary though.
1: Very necessary. Just mm-hmm. so such good challenging context it's it's so important that these these chapters exist because of course one of the things that i'm very aware of is what, that people will forget the rawness of this time yeah. and i think yeah. and i was personally like the, the let the bodies pile high was a phrase that really it did for me because it wasn't true in the sense that you know whatever was happening my colleagues in the mortuaries that's where i do a lot of my work were just working mm. so hard to ensure it didn't happen and that was why it was so wonderful to have um, Candida's chapter. And then we've also got Laura Rose's chapter, which is about mm. that actual experience in the mortuary. Because actually you sort of let the bodies pile high, became this kind of, you know, you'd see, you, you know, more perhaps um, anti-government uh, commentators using it to sort of um, shout at the government with. And actually what I knew was people were working 24 hours a day to make sure that didn't happen. Right. Yeah. Um. And I think also what what Candidus chapter highlights for me is a question we're going to have to have, which is about triage, which is about who do we save, which is about mm. what next, which is about the National Health Service. So, again, you know, when I say have this book on your shelf for all things, <laughs> it is for that point as well.
2: That's such a good point, Lucy. And you're right. We find the hope in it's the next chapter or the one after, which is Lara's chapter, which is okay we've had let the the bodies high, pile high but then what actually happens on the ground and its people mm-hmm. working overtime to make sure the bodies don't pile high and the mm-hmm. humanity comes back in in the face of the dehumanizing discourse and the depersonalization of the pandemic through the numbers every day and all of that no there's people on the ground that do see the people and that are human and and that's where that's where the hope and the humanity of the pandemic um lay and in the book as well it's it's reflective it reminds us that even in the face of these kinds of dehumanizing discourse the people on the ground haven't lost their humanity so yes it's um the chapters balance one another out in that way um yes thank you lisa for reminding me of that.
1: <laughs> there's always got to be a, there's always got to be a hope and and lara i mean lara's i use lara's writing all over the place at the moment i just quote it and it was that I remember that coming in. Do you remember that coming in Candida and it came into you and you I think it came into me and, and I forwarded it on to you. And I just couldn't I couldn't believe that in the midst of all the madness she'd been able to write like she had. And of course, one of my areas of work is the return of people's personal effects, which is sort of for me how you define a disaster scene. And then she was writing it in a in a in the in the context of hospital and i think also because it's quite a, it's quite a you know a big piece of writing and a few of the pieces of writing start to <laughs> start to come in and i remember thinking i remember thinking wow we've got a book here because at <laughs> first i think you're, you we were keeping each other going we were keeping each other going emotionally and and you know self-care wise and candida is just an engine room of getting stuff done so these appointments would appear in the diary on a friday for us all to meet and all these other projects were kind of falling by the wayside you know when the pandemic started i think all academics thought they'd get esrc grants and do ethnographies of like village mm. shops and and actually this was the only one that just kept going and these pieces of writing would come in mm. and i wouldn't want to ever do anybody any harm and so i'd say to laura rose you know if you're too busy she's working full time in a pediatric mortuary you know i'm like if you too and she she just wrote and wrote and wrote and um, it's got the quality of the sort of folios that you find written about the 1918 pandemic. So Mark Horning's Brown had collected a lot of stuff for understanding influenza in 1918, and Lara Rose's writing reminds me of that. Really,
2: mm. yes, yes. It wasn't. It's yes, Lucy's quite right. It's it was such a hard, difficult time, but it was so easy for the it's that people wanted people needed a place maybe to to get this stuff out and it we absolutely very gentle and it it, but no there was no sort of chasing after people pressure to write it it was very much it was flowing out of people and the book is a place where it's it's collected up yeah
1: yeah yeah I think it'll change um research methods actually I think it's done a little bit of a shot in the arm for kind of qualitative and first-person accounts and ethnographic I don't mean just when this over I mean the, the pandemic or altogether. I think I'm seeing I, I, I um, edit a public health journal at the moment and I'm seeing you know the use of much more first person the much more use of of intimate autoethnography and I, I love that you know I'm a memoir memoir writer as well and I just think mm. Yeah, I'd I'd love this to be used as an example of anthology gathering, but also as an example of first person qualitative writing. I a lot I think I think actually, you know, I th- I thought it would be a real boom for quantitative these times, but I'm actually seeing the traditional quant scientists <laughs> coming over this way and saying, "What have you got for us in qualitative writing?" And long may that last. So, yeah, it, yes. again, just come back to loving it really.
2: Yes and also this thing happened thinking about what you said about people going for grants and stuff like we didn't go for a grant didn't have time there was never a plan at any point no it it couldn't have been done if we tried to make it formal and go through some sort of filling out a form like writing down the outcome we
1: had no idea no Mm
0: -hmm. that's
1: what I love I think if we tried to fill in I mean you would have got it done Candida because you're just like a you're just like a a, a, a power woman. She, I just need her in my life all the time. But I think sometimes I, I have found over the years that something about the spirit of something dies when you put it on a grand form. Oh. <laughs> and like we'd have had to explain our interdisciplinary, and somebody would have said we needed a physicist. Uh-huh. And it just it just stayed perfect. And you know we found little bits of money for the launch, and I'm fairly certain that we owe Candida for the crisps and the the wine. Oh and you know it's <laughs> it it just happened. And I do want people to remember that because I think. I think there's something that's a bit of a message right back at academia as well. I mean, there's a culture in disaster management of an urgency grant and I had an urgency grant for a previous piece of research, but it still took a year really certainly six to nine months for that to come through. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think if you think about it, gosh, when was the draft in? Was it, it was in within the, within the first year or certainly we had the big discussions, didn't we? By the first year, you just think, that's there's a message there for fast you know as i say in disaster management studies we call it urgency research Mm. and this is a this is a good example of that i think
2: yes that doesn't really exist in the social sciences Um, and in a way like this book shouldn't really be possible if we've done everything (laughs) the proper way
1: Uh, (laughs) i love that yeah that's very true we're rebels academic (laughs) although we do obviously cite properly of course of course
0: (laughs) Draw line throw somewhere. all the
1: conventions <laughs> out the window <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. um what's um what would you say is the emotional toll of all this um have we seen it yet and um will it play out over the next decade well it's
1: funny because I thought I had fairly considered answers, and then at the launch, I sort of just kind of completely lost it, really. I think it was in response to to a question about you know next time and all of these kind of things mm. and I don't think this is anywhere near Mother Nature finishing with us yet. I think there's still so much more to come and i I think this is this is probably a new era of where we are a little bit more aware of of what's happened and what's going to happen um i feel like people have been through the ringer and they're quite mm. you know quite the nerves are quite friable i also think that as a pandemic planner you you plan for the virus and i you know say i'm a disaster planner so the pandemic was a very high risk that we looked at you didn't just plan for the virus you plan for the societal effects and really the clock on them has only just started mm. um and uh you know i think one of the things that the books proved very um thoughtful on is as we emerge from the pandemic, we begin to mix again. Uh, The lack of empathy between socioeconomic groups. Um, You know, we're already seeing hierarchies develop. And this was something that was not unusual to me in disaster planning. Um, Actually, you know, rivalries and different feelings about resource was very, very common. So we're in quite a fraught period. I also think that in terms of the the pandemic's place in, in global history, you know, it gets a big chapter in the What's Gone Wrong This Century uh textbook and it doesn't finish. You know, it will we will all bookmark it in our lives and we mm-hmm. will all have that effect. I often wondered how people came back from things like the Blitz or or war and now I know that you just pretend, you just keep going. I'm not. I'm not right. saying everybody's feeling is comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a there is a there is a very surreal effect. I think we're storing up a lot of kind of compound bereavement, a lot of compound loss. Mm. Um, but then you know where I go in the book is that's that's the true nature of a kind of complicated survivance, which is the idea of the rubbish thing is happening along here but you have to find space and place to to live again you mm-hmm. know and i think everything does feel more more sort of sacred at the moment the chance to live and laugh um and the chance to you know be with each other i have these moments where i just can't believe what wasn't allowed i think that hits me sometimes um and i have huge moments when i think about what we've what we've lost and i I think we haven't we haven't done those accounts yet we haven't done our sums of what we've lost right, and that will right. that's still to come um and you'll see a kind of compound fatigue you're seeing all the stuff about the great exodus from the national health these are all the emotional toll mm. and uh, you know the there is a price to be paid you can't just style out a pandemic and its aftershock mm-hmm.
2: At the launch, you were talking about st- the strikes as well, you weren't you? That people sort of saying no, like we we carried on through this whole thing, and it's coming out now in the industrial action we're seeing around in um around our uh, public sector workers and our like we we got a wave of strikes in the university sector, mm-hmm. um, and and like this is perhaps an after effect. People were worn down, burnt out. It was too much. And so now we're seeing these kind of um resistances to continuing as normal in in, in number of, um, in numerous kinds of fields. It just I, I hadn't really connected that before until you said that.
1: Yeah, and I think you just one of the things that I'd seen was like, you know, we use a lot in disaster planning the, the idea of the recovery graph where you have this initial honeymoon phase and then the disillusionment and the ag- anger and the fragmentation kicks in. And so in a way, I think the disaster planners carry a particularly heavy, you know, lantern to bear because they're kind of everything that isn't a huge surprise to them. And I remember talking to somebody in the Department of Health about strikes and they just couldn't believe that the goodwill would fade. And you you right. sort of say, you know, you're committing moral injury, you're committing psychological um, harm. And people will start to look around and think, which we always see after disaster, Um, there has to be more to this there has to be a point there has to be worth more than this and i think i think money is such a small part of it and i think one of the dangers is any monetary victory or whatever that looks like will just seem so hollow mm-hmm. and i think the i think the sectors that were already struggling i think academia has been struggling for a while with what it is You know, what is it there for? Is it a cash cow? Is it commercial? Is it a paid service? Do you put in your 9000 into the machine, press a button and get a degree out of the end? (laughs) Academia has been an emotional identity crisis for years. And it goes back actually to the point about this book. You know, four of us shouldn't be able to just do this. It had become so... We, you had to, you know, show your ideas to a research impact lead and it had to be weighed against the department's objectives. You right. know, we shouldn't be able to just pull something this incredible off. That isn't how <laughs> academia was working. And also, you know, we were working particularly... Um, uh, Candida and Amy, who had very, 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 very active teaching uh timetables, were writing this and doing this at night. And that's how academia is 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 run. So you have these kind of performance reviews where you're you're supposed to be teaching and your evaluations are supposed to be incredible, and then you are also supposed to be research active and publishing. Mm. So, I think for me these these strikes were kind of baked in for some you know, whether it's academia or in health well before the pandemic
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: what what I say in the book in my summation is you don't see new cracks; you just see the disaster blow them wide open, and I right, think that's right. what we're seeing
0: in the in the Twitter thread chapter. Mark Brown notes that um while while there was help early on in the period of in the period of the pandemic in the early period of the pandemic there hasn't been any support or fundraising since um since since for the there hasn't been any support or fundraising since for the hundreds of thousands of people mourning family members partners or friends do you think this is something that this country needs
2: that's such a good good question um and again it's very difficult to answer due to the inequalities of the pandemic there's not for me this country i don't know what that is anymore but this I mean, after after pandemic, um, what comes next, commemorating the pandemic, these are all questions and chapters that we have in the book. And um, in my answer here, I'm kind of going to refer to Jenny's chapter and her thoughts on this because she's this is her area, really. Mm. Um, so, of course, there are many that do desperately want and need, um, they want a coming together, a reckoning, a an accounting, And we see that through the movement to have the the sat at the minute the self-proclaimed national COVID memorial wall in london made the official national um that's not yet been done the government haven't yet said this is our national memorial there's Mm. um but there's that push to have we need a memorial and it ought to be this one and we 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 desperately we desperately need recognition of the loss
0: Mm. Uh, candida can you um only because when i was reading the book yeah. Um. I was really surprised. I'd never heard of this wall. And when I spoke to family members of mine, they'd never heard of it either. Could you could you yeah. describe it, please?
2: Yes. So in London, opposite, it faces the Houses of Parliament. It's over the other side of the river. But, so you can see it from inside that building. And mm. it's, um, it goes all along the... It's, it's just... But you come out of Waterloo train station, you go down to the river. It's the Albert Embankment, just... Mm-hmm the left basically and it stretches all the way down to opposite Westminster all along Lambeth and it's it's um it's hundreds of thousands of red painted hearts up um painted up on this wall Mm. and it was initiated kind of covertly by the led by donkey the activist group Mm. they turned up at this wall um dressed in like fluorescent yellow to try and look official if you will to start painting <laughs> this on right. and they, they've they reached out to the, active, the activist groups the brief um the Marie families for justice groups to say we're going to do this we're going to make a memorial we're going to paint it on the wall come come and be a part of this and mm. so the those groups did and gradually more and more people started to make pilgrimages to London to paint their heart on the wall and each heart represents somebody who's died during uh, the pandemic somebody who's died um, of Covid Mm. and now the so Led by Donkeys kind of initiated this had the idea to to use the hearts as the design Mm -hmm. but then they sort of handed over to now the guardians of the wall who are members of the the bereaved families for justice groups and so Fran Hall contributes to our book she's written a chapter describing what they do now as guardians of the wall but it's not an official uk memorial so but it's mm-hmm. become a place to recognize the loss of covid so certain politicians have turned up there to sort of pay their respects religious leaders have turned up there to pay their respects but mm-hmm. it's still not official um and our um you know we that's what they want they want this to be the official uk memorial yep. but um, um but that's very interesting from you rich that other people haven't even heard of it
0: yeah, um, yeah, very. That, it's impressive. I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it.
2: Yeah, I need to go visit it
0: now, it, definitely.
2: That you've not heard of it, and that maybe I'm pers- I'm writing an article at the minute on this wall and kind of thinking it through. Um, of course, it's very accessible for certain people. Maybe it's not to others, and it's, it's a problem you haven't heard of it, and others haven't. Mm. It's have a place to go, but so the appropriateness of the wall is another matter. But there certainly there is certainly a movement that wants um. A a national memorial, and Mm -hmm. wants the government to stop and say, and you know, say this is this is what we lost, and that's that's kind of not happened yet. And and for Jenny, this is this is the this is the politics of now memory, and in terms of the pandemic, when will we be told it's time to remember? What will we be told to remember? This is all being contested now, and 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 for Jenny and I, this is something that we're used to studying in relation to after war, Mm -hmm. who gets remembered and how, and when are we meant to remember them? And this is the remembering the pandemic, the politics of all that is now, we're in that stage, the contest over how the pandemic will be remembered, or or will it be? Or will Mm -hmm. we just be, I mean, there's other sections of society and there's other forces that are just saying, Let's carry on. We, no, let's just not stop. No, let's not bother thinking about that. Let's just sort of pretend that will never happened. Mm-hmm. So there's these forces at work, and this is we're in the politics of that now, in the politics of memory. And there's those certain groups that will will maybe not go away. We'll keep demanding. No, we want to remember. We want to we want to know what happened, and that we used to seeing that post-war as well. Yeah. So that's now where the sort of the politics lies, um, and it is there, but it is fraught, and there's a lot of anger within the communities that lost people, that felt that things weren't done properly, that there mm-hmm. was um, a lack of care, that people were, were made um, extremely vulnerable and they were not looked after. and So there's, and they want answers, what happened? Um, why Why did my loved one die like this? Well, mm-hmm. What went wrong? So there's this is now the politics of after the pandemic end, what will we remember and when will justice be done? And that's all ahead of us, of course there's inquiry, but that's that's for reasons made clear in the in the book, that probably won't be it won't it won't um it won't be satisfactory for for many involved. So that's what I'm looking.
0: Yeah, I was certainly re- uh, learning that throughout the book. Um, you know, the um it's re- it's really important um all the all the different aspects of COVID, that uh, Lucy, you were saying earlier about like it's so important that you have the the rawness of the um of the covid experience you have the hope um but also the kind of like the yeah like the staring in the face of 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 of, of history previous i suppose of just like what is going to be remembered is yeah. uh what are the chances that this is going to be remembered or you know like purposefully yeah. is this going to be remembered
1: and i think people find it quite shocking if i say like i did at the a book launch for- for, for when this is over, I think people find it quite shocking. If I say I think they will forget, I think forgetting mm. actually has a purpose in all of this. I don't think the public inquiry. I, I know public inquiries very well. Um, it's a it's a supposed learning tool that is the frequent go to in disaster response. For me, I become more and more convinced that that is not the vehicle for remembering. And not the vehicle for not forgetting, which are two different things, actually, because the not forgetting is also um, it has to be. a, And I say this in in my writing at the end, it has to be a really um, uh, carefully uh, navigated path Mm. because you also have to move forward. It has so much parallels life after disaster with grief and bereavement. And, you know, finding the strength to put your coat on and go on while simultaneously honoring what you've been through. And also, I think I was very comfortable as a disaster planner that there is no one lesson. You know, people mm-hmm. people want, I've seen an APPG, so that's a parliamentary uh, group in parliament, calling on ministers to confirm they will never lock down again. You know, what are the lessons from this? Um, you know, and I, I always think of the families uh, at the wall who take their red paint and they repaint the heart so they will not forget and, and mm. the world will not forget. And the, the wall is a very important and, and symbolic place because it's so visible. And then when the queen died here, here in Britain, you, you know, people were, were ups, uh, quite rightly upset because the queue to go and see the queen's coffin meant that people were leaning against the hearts, you know, and that reminded me as a oh, disaster wow. planner yeah. of, you know, the times when memorial gardens for air crashes or for um other things, people, um people will forget that there's a memorial, mm-hmm. gra- you know, there, you know, there's a, there's a big colliery disaster near where I live and, and the bodies are still underground, you know, sort of many, many decades later. And the plaques get smaller and smaller. It's in in, in Wrexham, you know, right. was very famous at the moment. And, yeah. uh, you know, the worst colliery disaster in history. And basically it is known about, but it gets, it shrinks all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, that's very, very hard, particularly for the grieving that it does that. Mm-hmm. But it also, I think, has a purpose and where i feel comfortable is in the writing just before mine which is the wonderful matt hogan who just thinks and writes i think for emergency planners everywhere and he he is he is very confident in his writing that the changes we will make will make a small difference and that's all we can ask for really. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's a very, very surreal time. People sort of shouting my face in the early stages after the disaster saying, this will be the moment, won't it this will be the this will be the time we, this this will be the one we never forget that you know there is no there is uh, there is no guarantee of that and there is purpose in forgetting i think particularly for children and young people
0: mm.
1: i i never i never begrudge a disaster community that tries to move on and we will be doing we will be doing the same you know we will have mm. to move forward and it will have to take a place i think the hardest thing for families and for those right in the eye of it is when it becomes historic when it is framed as an archive um, and um you know when you know when when this is over that's the that's the true test, but as I said at the launch, you know one of the things that I did in the early hours of the sort of February and March twenty twenty when it was really dawning on me what was hitting was that I reached for I reached for the bookshelf, and that's what will happen with when this is over, people will reach for it, and that might be a hundred years from now, you know my my um my readings, I, I looked at things from the black death. I looked at things from 1918. I wasn't interested in the science. I was interested in the social science. I was interested in what it right. said about what people needed
0: mm-hmm. and all
1: of the research, however far back you went, wherever country you were were in, whether it was the global South, whether it was Europe, there was always a thing about if you take people's rights and rituals, how, how heavy the toll would be. And that really um, death by contamination. So f- disease whether that was a you know i I do a lot of work with things like biological weapons the deaths that make you behave in an anti-human way were always going to be the hardest to live with so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh things to get past there's a lot of things to um try and place Mm -hmm. into into books uh you know to take you back to that first question i love the i love the um they it's not messiness but i love the the difference of all of the pieces in the anthology because i hope if you were to pick this up in 100 years it would say something about where we were at you know we were not organized we were not we were not um trying to be clever we were not trying to to go for promotion <laughs> in <laughs> academia we were trying to remember and that's that's all we could do at that time
0: yeah i love that i think uh that's a lovely, where, lovely place to uh, to stop as well, if that's okay with you. Um, Candida and Lucy, thank you so much for coming on the Transforming Society podcast today. Thank you
1: for, thank having, you us. for having us. Thank yeah, an you. An absolute
0: pleasure. Um, in a moment, I'll let everybody know where where we where they can find your book. Um, but uh, also, just wanted to know. Um, where where they could find you um online, I guess this would be. <laughs> I
1: tweet relentlessly and through the night at, at LucyGobag, and I have all of my podcasts and ramblings at whatevernext.info.
2: Yes, I also tweet um round the clock at <laughs> Candida Purnell, And you can find a link to me there, candidapurnell.me is where bits and pieces are posted.
0: Great, great, thank you. When this is over, Reflections on an Unequal Pandemic, edited by Amy Courtrand, Lucy Easthope, Jenny Edkins, and Candina Purnell, is published by Policy Press. You can find more information about the book by visiting policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk and also transformingsociety.co.uk.